1: When I review a new textbook for a use in a Civil War class, I can be pretty sure that it's going to have a section, but not more, on the role of American Indians in the war. It'll feature the usual suspects, Stan Waddy, John Ross, maybe something about the Sioux Rebellion, but it's unlikely to answer basic questions like why certain Indian nations sided with the Confederacy. For one nation's answer to that question, and a lot more, I'd have to read a fascinating new book. Choctaw Confederates, The American Civil War in Indian Country. We'll talk with the author of that book, Professor Faye Yarbrough, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not, however, representing East Carolina University or ecu if you wish to call it by its initials or anything else just speaking for myself and my guests likewise will speak only for ourselves tonight as we always do well it's the spring of 2023 april 12th second show of the month uh 599th episode of civil war talk radio And it's because it's spring, it's baseball season. East Carolina moved up back into the top 10 nationally this week. We're number nine now. Uh, Got a three-game sweep against University of Central Florida last week, which is their, uh, one of their players on UCF's baseball team is also their football quarterback. uh, And we beat them in football last season also. So the fans were urging him to try out for basketball, and then we could beat them in that also, which would be nice. But actually, we won't see UCF again for a long time. They're moving into the Big 12 next year. um, And given their record against the Pirates, I say good luck there, fellas, uh, in in the Big 12. This past past week here on campus, we had a workshop. We had some consultants come in and conduct a workshop about university identity. And I decided to attend... Partly there was a lottery to win a parking pass for next year if you attended, but more important, I thought this is the kind of thing where people are gonna say stupid things and, and I just think I should be there and, and maybe try to counteract some of it. Uh, actually, the people who attended, uh, some of whom I knew were pretty much on the ball and we had a, uh, did some exercises about what kind of personality ECU has as an institution. Uh, And uh, this place really does have a a personality. I I was surprised by the amount of concurrence among the people in the room that uh, uh, ECU defines itself largely in comparison to the the big schools in the state, uh, Chapel Hill, uh, NC State, uh, that get far more resources than we do, but we do more with what we get. Uh, There's a real chip-on-the-shoulder attitude that we are not going to uh, take a backseat to anyone, even though we don't have the prestige that those places have, and also the the real pleasure that we take in the large number of first-generation college students that we serve and and the, the transformative effect it has on them to come from some small rural Eastern Carolina town and discover the universe of opportunity that uh, that a university like ucu presents them uh, that that is a really really rewarding thing to be part of and uh, i hope that our consultants capture some of that when they decide to rebrand us in some way unlike our previous chancellor two two doors back who came up with the slogan capture the horizon how does one capture a horizon not clear at all uh, So I'm sitting here in my office yesterday, and my neighbor, Todd Bennett, in the next office, uh, Todd, uh, Todd has just published a new book called Neither Confirm Nor Deny How the Glomar Mission Shielded the CIA from Transparency. You may remember the Glomar Explorer of Howard Hughes, and it was really a cover for the CIA looking for a Russian submarine. So Todd's written what seems to be a really interesting book. I'm going to read it this summer when, when Civil War books are put aside briefly. So I'm sitting in my office, and another colleague from a different department comes in and starts talking to him about his book and keeps talking and keeps talking. And I'm in my office. I've got the door open, and five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes go by. This guy has not stopped talking, and Todd is pinned down. He's trapped in his office uh, so finally, after 50, literally 15 minutes of this guy not taking a breath, I picked up my phone and called, uh, called Todd on the phone. This is very old school to hear a telephone actually ring, uh, a real landline phone. And, and I said to him, you know, there's, if you need it, there's an emergency meeting where you have to go right now. Uh, you better, better get out of there. And he, he, he immediately, you know, oh, oh, yes, of course, I'll be right there. And, and hung up and went down to the chair's office. Um, he, when the coast was clear, he came back later and thanked me profusely, and I've decided to enter that on the service portion of my annual report uh, for next year as, as my good deed for 2023. Uh, you can do good deeds by uh, going to www.impedimentsofwar.org and finding out who's going to be on the show next. Uh, Next week, it is Harold Holzer returning for maybe the fifth time now to talk with us on our 600th anniversary. Uh, If you've been listening to the show steadily, you've heard this 599 times. Episode 600, uh, we'll talk about all of his 40 books about the Civil War and Lincoln. On the 26th of April, Jessica Zapparo will be with us for the first time. Her book uh, is about women entering the federal workforce during the Civil War. On May 3rd, John Avalon will be here. He has a popular book called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. On the 10th of May, Ty Sedgley, Robert E. Lee and Me, a Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. You've probably seen him on YouTube, and I'm really looking forward to that talk. No live show on the 17th. We'll be traveling this hallowed ground with... Uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. You can still sign up for that. Be back on May 24th. Julie Holcomb will explain to us the Civil War in 50 Historic Treasures. That's the name of the book, Exploring the Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. We'll find out what the 50 treasures are and more. All of that is at www.impedimentsofwar.org where you can also donate. Click on the PayPal button. uh, Donate, make a continuing donation of $5 a month, and you're paying only $1.25 for each show and getting the first 600 of them for free. It's, it's quite a bargain. Uh, and if you donate, if you become a, a recurring donor now, $5 a month or more, I will make you a verified listener and put a blue check next to your name. Now, on Twitter, as you know, a blue check costs $8 a month plus the humiliation of letting people know that you're paying a billionaire for essentially nothing. But at Civil War Talk Radio, it's only $5 a month. And to protect your dignity, the verified listener check is entirely virtual, kept only within my head, where I will visualize a blue check next to your name. So, go to www.impedimentsoffor.org, mash on the PayPal button, and send money to the Civil War talk radio book and bourbon fund. It's not tax deductible. It's just extra money for me. Well, let's talk tonight about the Choctaw Confederates. Uh, This is a new book written by Faye Yarbrough. She's a professor of history and associate dean of humanities for undergraduate programs and special projects at Rice University. Professor Yarbrough, are you there?
3: Yes, I am. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. So I see you're at Rice University. You're going to be joining uh, the American Athletic Conference next season, and and you'll get to come and play ECU uh, in all kinds of sports.
3: Indeed, we will be, and we actually probably pay more attention to sports in my house than... um, your average Rice faculty member, because I'm a Rice alum from my undergraduate days, and I'm married uh-huh. to a Rice alum who played football at Rice. <laughs> so wow. well, we pay a lot of attention, actually.
1: Well, well, I certainly do it as well. I'm, I'm a Michigan alum, but uh, ah. it, uh, but Michigan's playing ECU next September. That's going to be uh, a, a wild thing. Oh, but I will say is. this. Wow. You, you, you are, you'll are you be raising the academic profile of our conference when, when Rice joins us, so, so welcome. Uh, well, let's talk about your book, uh, Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. Uh, basic question, what brought you to this topic?
3: Um, that is a question that has a long answer. Are you prepared for a long answer?
1: Uh, I'm looking at our clock. Yeah, let's fire away. <laughs> Fire away. We've got uh, 44 more minutes.
3: Okay. So um, when I was working on my uh, first book project, um, Race in the Cherokee Nation, I was in the archives at uh, the Oklahoma Historical Society, and I met a woman named Mildred Brown, who was a volunteer archivist, and she saw me coming in every day and said, what are you working on? I don't think you're doing genealogy. That's who usually comes here. Right. And I, you know, told her about my my project and she said to me, oh, you should write about my family. And I actually, I don't know if in your experience you have that happen a lot, but I actually do have that happen a lot. But people tell me I should write about their family and said, "Oh, really? You know what what's interesting in your family?" And um she then proceeds to tell me about how she is a member of Choctaw Nation and descended from um a family that Dan Littlefield has written about, it, a family in which um the uh, the uh main figure married a Choctaw woman and had children and then had children with an enslaved woman and then attempted to free those children of African ancestry and had it declared in the newspaper and took them out of um, Choctaw Nation, only to, upon his death, have his part Native and part European children attempt to re-enslave their half-siblings. So (laughs) Mildred lays out this story for me and then very generously says, oh, and I have all this genealogical material I've been collecting. Um, I'm happy to share it with you. And Mildred Brown is a woman who was a volunteer archivist at the Oklahoma Historical Society, you know, retired and, and coming in to help people with their genealogical projects. So she set me on a path. Um, To think about memory and how her family remembers this history and um, how they talk about it and she met some descendants uh, from the um, part African and part Choctaw side of the family and you know she set up an interesting for me um, question about again memory and and how people think about their ancestry But when I dove into the legislative documents of the Choctaw Nation, I found this moment in um, the uh, legislature where they're passing a law to um, make saying anything negative about the Confederate Army treason, treason Mm -hmm. against the Choctaw Nation. And I thought, that is an amazingly (laughs) bold move and um, demonstrates a a commitment to the Confederacy that I just wasn't expecting to see. So that's how I got to this project. I then started asking, but why? Why are they so committed to the Confederate Confederate cause? What is so appealing to Choctaws at this time about um, the Confederate cause in this moment? Um, And answering that question is what drove uh, the book. So I started off thinking about memory and and being really interested in uh, Mildred Brown's family. She's a descendant of William Beams. And then took this turn into um, the Civil War and wanting to know more about why uh, the Choctaw legislature would declare um, saying anything negative about the Confederate Army treason.
1: So let's to to sort of put all the cards on the table uh, mm-hmm. in just in just two minutes before the break, uh, quick summary: Why side with the Confederacy and not the United States? What's the short answer? And we'll talk about the long answer the rest of the night.
3: Sure. The short answer is that I argue that the Choctaw Nation is interested in two things. Mm-hmm. One, they are slaveholders, and they do have an e- economic interest in preserving the practice of enslaving people of African descent. But also, mm-hmm. too, they are very interested in protecting um, Choctaw sovereignty, and they see the Confederacy as their best bet on preserving and protecting their right to self-determination and their territorial um, boundaries.
1: And, and where are those territorial boundaries, just to orient us for, for, mm-hmm. for the, at, at the time of the Civil War?
3: So by the time that we're at we're at the Civil War, the Choctaw Nation is in Indian Territory, and if we think about um, the present day state of Oklahoma, that kind of pan shape, right? Mm-hmm. The Choctaw Nation is in the southeastern part of of that pan of the, you know, so close to Arkansas, um, close to Texas. Uh, that southeastern part of what we now know as the state of Oklahoma.
1: And in Oklahoma, then known as Indian Territory, there are other Indian nations sharing that space with the Choctaw?
3: So the Indian Territory as a whole, yes, has other um, nations there, such as the Cherokee, such as the Chickasaw, who have a relationship with Choctaw Nation that's rooted in um, their origin stories and um, this uh, migration to um, territory in the Southeast and then to Indian Territory, uh, the Creek, the Seminole. There are also other Native nations, of course, who were there, who, are, who were displaced by the movement um, of these uh, South, originally Southeastern groups to um, Indian Territory.
1: Well, we will find out more in just a moment about uh, what brought uh, the Choctaw to be such loyal confederates. Uh, We're talking about the book, Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. Our guest tonight is the author, Faye Yarbrough. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio stimulating talk it gets
0: those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts VoiceAmerica.com.
2: psych up live with host dr suzanne phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues this show addresses topics as varied as marital stress insomnia depression raising teens campus violence and building self-resilience
0: Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Faye Yarbrough, author of Choctaw Confederates, The American Civil War in Indian Country. So we've established that the the Choctaw who live in Indian country, uh, Indian territory, uh, the Roughly, the present-day state of Oklahoma, uh, side with the Confederacy, and and Faye, you said one of the reasons was uh, the practice of slavery was was part of their culture. Was was slavery among the Choctaw similar to that in the rest of the South? It, it I mean, obviously you've got a difference of, of the the ethnicity of the slaveholders, but uh, did the practice otherwise look the same?
3: Similar. So if we. Go backward in time and look at traditional Choctaw um, practice of enslavement. Uh, we would be thinking more about, obviously, enslaving other Native people as a practice of um, as a part of war practice. Uh, and for instance, mourning wars. I always tell my students, "mourning" as in you're sad, not "mourning" as in a.m. But um, there was a traditional practice that existed before. Um, the Choctaws encounter Europeans and enslaved Africans. And then um, this practice changes over time so that by the time we reach uh, the 19th century and the Civil War, they are engaged in a practice that look, would look very similar to to what we think of um, when we think about white Southerners. Uh, so that means um, there are some enslavers in Choctaw Nation who have large uh, holdings, who own uh, many enslaved people. They are growing cotton for market. Um, I would say something that's different is that they are also growing a lot of corn, more corn than you would see many other um, southerners grow who have uh, large plantations. But there are many similarities. Uh uh, also, in terms of slavery being a status that is inherited from the mother, that's something that's lifelong, um, that involves um, commodification of humans, right? That that they're purchasing, you know, some uh, Choctaw slaveholders are going to New Orleans to purchase enslaved people. So it, it looks a lot like what we think of when we think of slavery in the American South.
1: Now, you point out in your chapter on slavery among the... The Choctaw that there is at least a, a perception,
3: uh, mm-hmm.
1: both at the time and and later that that Indian slaveholders are less uh, less cruel somehow than mm-hmm. than enslavers throughout the rest of the South. But even the the subtitle of your chapter suggests that's not really the case. Uh, where does that perception come from?
3: Well, I think the perception comes from a couple of. Um, or a couple of ideas. So mm-hmm. one, um, I think part of that perception is racism, because there's this idea that uh, Native people held by white Southerners, that Native people don't really know how to do this properly. They don't really know how to manage the land. They don't really know how to quote-unquote good masters, meaning um, getting the most out of their enslaved population. So I think part of the perception is is um, is racism that they think oh no these these native enslavers can't possibly do this properly so I think there's that I think another part of the perception is because there are some enslaved people who make comments about um, if they had to be enslaved they would rather be enslaved by an Indian they prefer um, um, a native master to a white master so there's that um, but the, the flip side is that if we look at these um, groups, such as the Choctaw, who are matrilineal, um, enslaved people who are, are coming into their communities don't have um, a matrilineal connection to the Choctaw Nation. And the uh, mat- this matrilineal connection is also how you um, receive your clan identity, and this clan identity in the Choctaw Nation affords you many protections. Your fellow clan members are obliged to avenge you if something happens to you. They have obligations to you, and so there's a powerful way in which being outside of that identity is. Um, leaves you without any rights, and so enslaved people are quite vulnerable. Actually, in um, among the Choctaws and among uh, some of these Native groups who were in the southeast and then went to Indian, were you know were forcibly removed to Indian territory. So there's a story that's from Cherokee Nation of an of the federal agent who is assigned to them, reporting back that um, there is a Cherokee couple and his report is that the woman was displeased by their enslaved person and harangued her husband to um, kill this um, enslaved person. And the husband does it and chops off this enslaved man's head and throws the body in the river. And when the agent learns of this, he's horrified and he asks them, you know, what are you doing, why would you do that? and they are perplexed and they, and he reports that their response is but he he didn't have any rights he didn't have any rights that we were bound to respect so that's why i say there's a flip side to this um idea of of um enslavers in uh among the indian nations being kinder or Less competent, right? I mean, that's the racist mm-hmm. position. Less competent as as enslavers. The flip side is, if you're if you're looking at the structure of how society is organized in the Choctaw Nation, those enslaved people are actually very vulnerable because they're outside of these kinds of clan relationships.
1: You said something interesting about the, uh, the that some of the enslaved people stated they would prefer to be enslaved if they Mm -hmm. had to be, uh, by Indian masters. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear them say that yourself. What sources do we have to hear those voices talk?
3: Uh, You can see some of that in the um, Works Progress Administration slave narratives. So for your listeners, if they're not familiar with this, though I'm guessing if they've listened to 599 episodes, they probably are. But for any new people... I'm yeah, going to say the of the movie, there are yes. these <laughs> interviews that are collected um, around the time of the Great Depression, um, when the federal government has these programs that are trying to get people, you know, put people to work. Something mm-hmm. that they do with writers is they send them out to um, interview people who are still alive, who have been enslaved um, in the 19th century, but of course. It's Again, this is decades later because it's the time of the Great Depression. It's actually a project that starts with the work of some HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, in which students there um, had already started this uh, process of interviewing folks, and the Works mm-hmm. Progress Administration kind of piggybacks on that and then enlarges it. So um, there are volumes that you can find at university libraries, probably at some other um, public libraries as well. They're divided by state, and then they compile these interviews that folks collected with people who um, were alive um, and experienced uh, slavery. There's a similar um, collection, that's the Indian Pioneer Histories, and that, mm-hmm. Uh, includes interviews with people who lived in Indian territory in the 19th century. And so that's also another source that I use. It's really rich. There are the, the voices of enslaved people there as well, but also the voices of Native people, of white people who were in Indian territory um, in the 19th century. So
1: let me ask a a question about a, a strategic choice as a historian. When you're citing the WPA narratives, uh Those are written down as the interviewer heard the person speak uh mm-hmm. in in what we would call dialect, so mm-hmm. somebody you know will will say "Show enough instead of sure enough uh, mm-hmm. and you you make the point in your book that you decided to simply reproduce the dialect strictly as it appears in the interviews rather mm-hmm. than try to you know normalize it into modern English or anything else uh even though those are white interviewers writing a very won't say condescending version of black speech. What, what, what was, did, was there an alternative or I I was curious, I'm curious about about your, your discussion of that, uh, that, that choice on your part.
3: Yeah. So I also um, quote some of them extensively when I give public presentations about Mm -hmm. my work and for me, I um, as you say, there are problems because some of those interviewers are white. Some of them actually are re- relatives of people of the people who enslaved the person being interviewed. Right, so that's complicated. We've mm. uh, we've have scholarly work that demonstrates that um, the WPA informants are more um, forthcoming about uh, violent punishment when the interviewers are um, African- American so we know that there are some issues there however I think that these sources have already been mediated so much that I didn't want to mediate uh, mediate them further mm-hmm. this is as close as we can get to the voices of enslaved people speaking for themselves oh I would also point out that there are um, a number of um, autobiographies that are produced in century as well, of of people who experienced um, slavery, uh, partly as a a part of the abolitionist movement, but also after um, the Civil War, after emancipation. But to the point, I really think um, that I want to let those people speak for themselves as much as possible. I can't determine when the interviewer has changed the language or added dialect or taken away dialect for the, for the informant. And so for me, I wanted to preserve what was there as, as much as possible, again, to give the opportunity for these folks who were denied the ability to speak for themselves in so many ways in their lifetime, To at least in this moment, to try to render as much of their voice as, as I can. I know that there are other scholars who would disagree and, say, standardize the English and and all of that, but I mm-hmm. really found, find them quite powerful, even as some of these... Um, memories are being um, filtered through the white interviewer, they sometimes leave things that are actually quite negative (laughs) about white people and about the Mm -hmm. enslaver. And so that material is there too. And so... I don't know, I, I have a hard time saying, well, I'm going to believe that this part is true, but I'm not going to believe that the dialect is true. Do you see what I mean? So sure, sure. So, no, again, sense. I, I erred on the side of, let me preserve the voices as they're rendered here in this source.
1: So, with um, the the topic of, of enslavement in the Indian nations uh, is fascinating, and we could do the rest of the evening, of, but <laughs> let's get to the Civil War what What was at stake for the Choctaw nation They had the option uh, you know to just sit the whole thing out uh, what 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 did they see was at stake for that would cause them to join the confederacy?
3: Yeah, so there is the option to sit things out, but they are all in pretty early, so the Choctaws mm-hmm. are described by Confederate leaders as their most loyal allies in Indian territory. And part of that is because even before any treaty of alliance is made between the Choctaw Nation and the Confederate government, they are already enlisting people to serve um, on the side of the Confederacy, right? So no, no agreements been made, no, no formal um, relationship has been established for those soldiers to serve, but they are signing up anyway, right? They, the, um, Alliance doesn't come until July, and people are signing up uh, in April and um, February. So I think um, I I just have to point out that, yes, the possibility for neutrality is there, but the Choctaws don't seem to... Um, linger on that possibility very long at all. They're not like the Cherokee Nation and John Ross who 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 tried to hold out and hold out and remain neutral for as long as possible. So, that aside, I think that there are, are multiple things at stake. So one, and the Confederacy, you know, Confederate officials point this out to the Choctaw Nation and Choctaw officials quite early. Um, many of the investments that were made on behalf of the Choctaw nation um, as payment for these land sessions are investments in Southern businesses. And so the Confederate government, Indian agents, you know, federal agents sent to um, work with native populations, those agents say right away, if this, if the South fails, you will lose all of those investments. Um, the Confederate um uh, government also promises um, the Choctaw Nation the moon. They promise we're going to honor all of the treaties you've already made with the federal government. You can already see that the federal government doesn't honor those treaties, but we promise we will do that. They promise to pay all of the costs associated uh, with um, military service for Choctaw troops uh, on on behalf of the Confederacy. They promise to acquit. Um, and prov- provision those troops. Um, I think the uh, also at stake is that, again, the Choctaw Nation does have this economic investment in the institution of slavery. They also have structured um, their uh, society around the fact that there are enslaved people who hold a lower status and people of African descent who hold a lower status in society. So it's upending those kinds of relationships as well. Um, I think the Choctaw Nation sees their sovereignty at stake. They really think that the Confederacy, that the the Confederate government is going to honor um, Native sovereignty said differently, how can um, a new government that's arguing for their right to self-determination and um, making statements about states' rights not recognize the, the sovereignty and the right to self-determination of these Indian nations. So I think for the Choctaw Nation, they see many things mm-hmm. um, as being at stake in this. Again, you know, they're their political existence, their economic existence, a social order that they're invested in, all of that is, is at stake.
1: So you said that they start volunteering, individuals start volunteering as early as February, March, mm-hmm. April of 1861. Uh, how many people will serve from the Choctaw Nation during the war? Did, do you have an account of that?
3: Uh, The records that I compiled um, show 3,000, over 3,000 Choctaw uh, servicemen, and Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell in my records, it's all men uh, served over the course of the war.
1: So in terms of percent of population, is that compared to the rest of the Confederacy?
3: Um, Actually, in, in terms of the, as a percentage of the population, it's, it's actually, um, while that number seems small <laughs> in mm-hmm. the aggregate, as a percent of the population, it's, it's actually uh, very similar to what you see in the South, if not a little, bit, a little bit higher as a percent of the population. It is not, however, the um, 10,000 troops that uh, one of the um, federal uh, agents to the Choctaw Nation predicted we're going to we're going to sign up. They predicted 10,000 <laughs> soldiers, which is astonishing because the population of Choctaw Nation at that time including the enslaved population was around 23,000.
1: That, that so that's just about all all the men yeah. and then some. Right, uh, that the, that's,
3: uh, that's what was predicted. Again, just to highlight how um much that the perception was among uh, Confederate officials that Choctaws were quite invested, quite loyal, quite enthusiastic about um, their, the Confederacy and siding with the Confederacy.
1: Now, the the organization, the military organization that they formed, the the first Chickasaw and Choctaw mounted rifles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you describe. Uh, you had a fascinating section talking about learning about these troops, and uh, you know, as any historian knows, uh, the sources are are always the first question: where are you going to, what are you going to find out about these people? So we're we're coming up to a break. So let me ask you a question now, and we'll come back to it right after the break. Um, what sources? Do we have? We talked already about the, the, uh, uh, the slave narratives for, for pre war enslaved people, but what about the, the, the military records? Where does one go to find out about these units? So we'll come back in just a moment. We'll ask that question to our guest tonight. She's Faye Yarbrough. She's the author of Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Self improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
2: Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Behind doors. Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Voice America is on LinkedIn.
0: Connect with us today. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Faye Yarbrough, author of Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. So, Faye, you said the the uh, first Chickasaw and Choctaw mounted rifles uh, and other units serving the Confederacy en- enlists over 3,000 members of, of Choctaw nation. Where did you find out about these people? What records are available?
3: Well, the record um, source is really rich, and I uh, looked at the compiled service records of Confederate soldiers who served in organizations raised directly by the Confederate government, and that is from National Archives. And National Archives provided these um, records digitized, uh, they're available for purchase. Um, I first saw them um, at the University of Oklahoma um, as a part of their collections of materials um, related to um, Native populations, and I saw them there, and I, I'm i pretty sure they're the reason why I need reading glasses now because <laughs> I <laughs> looked at thousands of... Um, these records on microfiche and then um, ordered them digitized uh, and continued to look at them when I returned back to Houston. So they're a really rich um, resource base for any of your listeners if, if they're inclined to do this kind of work or if they're trying to um, track down family members, for instance.
1: Well, one of the, the fascinating things you talk about is, uh, is that these soldiers, you know, are, are not like the rest of the Confederate Army? You describe one person observing them riding across the plain. They could tell at a distance that they were Indians by the way they rode. Mm-hmm. Uh, they the warfare for the Choctaw has a place in society different than it does in, in, in Euro-American society, and you particularly talk about. The uh, masculinity and the need to go to war—it—it mm-hmm. it made me think of of, of late 19th century uh, uh, United States, where, you know, the generation that, that Oliver Wendell Holmes talks about, his generation being touched with fire, and now the young men of the late 19th century can't—they don't have a war to go to, and they can't. Uh, the industrial revolution has taken away uh, farming and made them into office workers, and they're all trying to decide how they can be men and, and of course that's where we get college football from uh, at least part of it. Um, it it grows up in that era how did it, it, warfare is important to masculinity among the Choctaw but there's no war to fight before the Civil War what what do they do in a society that yeah. demands a young man fight and there's no war available
3: yeah th- this really presents a problem and part of what I um, hope I, I get across in the book is that part of the appeal um, to participate in the Civil War for individual soldiers, right? So putting aside mm-hmm. on, a, on a national level what the Cherokee Nation sees as their advantage, what you know, lawmakers see as, as the um, attraction of siding with the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the level of individual soldiers, it is this way to, to tap into more traditional to older notions of masculinity. So in the past, um, Choctaws, as a part of traditional practice, would have engaged in um, warfare, which would have looked very different from what we're thinking of with the Civil War uh, in the 19th century, meaning not mass casualties, not people dying. And you would mm-hmm. have done these feats of daring where... um you would show your prowess in battle, but not necessarily have to kill the other um, warrior in order to have demonstrated that. And it's an important rite of passage to becoming a manhood with full rights within um, the nation, meaning the ability to participate in political life, the ability to marry, right? And so I relate in the um, the work, you know, the legend of the nameless Choctaw who is unable to earn his name in battle and then uh, therefore unable to marry his love. And they both Mm -hmm. end up dying from grief and sadness because they can't be together. And so the, the civil war brings back this opportunity for Choctaw men to engage in this traditional practice that, that, um, let you, um, Demonstrate your masculinity and join as as a full um, participant in the political and social life of the nation, so in the interim um, Christina Snyder writes about this uh, the Choctaw men are engaged in other kinds of activities, so some of them are um, joining the light horse uh, force, the light horsemen so Something um, similar, akin to what we think of as a police force, but there are only so many um, light horsemen needed in each district. It mm-hmm. you can't pr- reproduce this ability to tap into this feeling of masculinity and again um, this rite of passage in the same way. Christina Snyder points out that some of the some Cherokee men are pursuing education. Perhaps this is a way that you can demonstrate your. Um, Value and um, give reason for why you should be able to participate in the full uh, political life of the nation, right? That men are looking for other ways to try to demonstrate this masculinity. And the Civil War provides an opportunity that harkens back to these older traditions.
1: I, when you're talking about masculinity, you also talk about the, the fluidity of the concept, and uh, you, you talk about the, the people known as two spirits. Uh, mm-hmm. Which immediately reminded me of the movie *Little Big Man*, uh, showing my age perhaps, and the character Little Horse in that movie, who is uh, we would I guess describe as gender fluid uh, today. And and Dustin Hoffman's character says this was just completely ordinary and among the the people he was living with uh, the the Indian tribe. Now of course that's fiction, but but the. Two spirits are. There were people who, uh, who didn't conform to to masculine rules, mm-hmm. and and were just like everybody else in in Choctaw society. That and, is to say, there were um, there were no yeah. pro, no need for protest marches or legislation or anything to deal with them. They were just people.
3: Yeah, and I would urge um, your listeners to read Greg uh, Smithers' new book, which offers a survey across many different Native nations and over time about third spirit, uh, two-spirit, or third gender. Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, folks use that language uh, of how Native societies um, accepted and had had a place for people who didn't conform to European standards or European notions of what you know, quote unquote, appropriate genders looked like, behaved like, et cetera.
1: Now, the, we have just a few minutes left and not really talked about the main uh, participation <laughs> of, of these the troops in the war. All the more reason, listeners, why you'll want to go ahead and get a copy of this book, uh, Talk Talk Confederates, and read about. Uh, but I will say it's not a battle book. You're, you don't write about tactics no, and, and, not and fighting. Not at all. That's, it's not, but but these the, the troops do participate in some some actions during the war, don't they?
3: They absolutely do. And um, what's interesting is that uh, Choctaw troops and the Choctaw legislature, as a part of their um, treaty with the Confederate government, actually insists that um, Choctaw troops can't be sent out of Indian territory unless the, um, the Choctaw authorities agree, right? So that's an interesting and powerful, mm-hmm. it seems to me, assertion of sovereignty that you can't send our troops elsewhere unless we agree that those troops can leave Indian territory. But they do participate in battles um, at Honey Springs, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, they are really important um, in terms of um, trying to, uh, these battles, uh, are, are about the supply road, the Texas road that goes through Indian Territory. And so important battles do happen. I, I know people really want to stay, um, it seems to me, as a Civil War historian. Folks are really interested in what's happening on on the east of the Mississippi River, but there are battles out west, and these battles are also very important.
1: Well, they, they, they are, you described them, um you also talk about what happens uh, at the end of the war with the uh, 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 the Confederate defeat, the emancipation of the enslaved. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our time and can't launch into that in any detail. Uh, so let me ask you instead a, a question I ask a lot of uh, guests on the show, that if you could board the Civil War time machine, Civil War talk radio time machine, go back uh, for 30 minutes in complete safety, and then return. Uh, who would you want to talk to? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Who would you want to talk to uh, that you've
3: studied? Oh, that is a really great question. You know, I think that I would want to um, talk to listen to Davis. So, Lucinda Davis, um, I opened Chapter 4 with her recollection of what she sees at the Battle of Honey Springs in July of 1863, and she's an enslaved woman. She's owned, actually, by um, someone um, from Creek Nation, and I would be very curious to hear from her perspective what she made of what was happening around her, you know? what she yeah, was it, seeing but also what she understood the war to be about how she saw her enslaver reacting to what was happening in terms of the war i would if i were able to go back i think i would be very interested in hearing from enslaved people more directly to call back to the question you asked about how sure. i um didn't alter the the language that's in those wpa narratives i would love to hear directly from someone who experienced enslavement um, Wait, that be... in Indian Territory?
1: Really, that would be so, what an opportunity to be able to do that. Um, we have just 30 seconds for a final quick question. Do you have another project uh, underway?
3: Oh my gosh, I do have a project, but it's a departure from <laughs> from this. I'm working with a colleague, Michael Moss, who is a, a historian of um, the ancient Roman world. And we actually have put together an, um, an anthology that's looking at indigeneity and empires. And um, half of the, the con- contru- contributors are scholars of the ancient world, and the other half are 19th century U.S. historians. And so they're looking at how empires deal with indigenous peoples, what kinds of laws are being passed, what, how folks are interacting, how ideas about gender are changing. So that's the current project.
1: Wow. Well, that, that's definitely a leap, uh, but, but right? it sounds very, very interesting. <laughs> well, this book certainly was very interesting. I enjoyed reading it. I learned a great deal uh, about uh, the Choctaw Nation and their participation, uh, their fervent Confederate participation, and and where it came from and how they executed it. Listeners, uh, you will enjoy this book. If you have any interest in the the war west of the Mississippi, you'll want to get uh, a copy of Choctaw Confederates, The American Civil War in Indian Country. It's written by our guest tonight, Faye Yarbrough. Uh, Faye, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight.
3: Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to your audience.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for
0: listening.